if you have your Bibles, open up me to Acts chapter 7. We're going to continue our study through the book of Acts that we are calling The Church because we're learning from the early church some lessons and some things that we can then apply to our church so that way we can learn how to be the church. If you're new, we're actually getting ready to start renovations, constructions on a brand new building that's going to double the size of our seating. We will no longer be at four services, but we'll be able to be at two services. And there's a lot of people who are going to be coming. And the last thing that they need is just another church. They need a church that looks like the church. And so we're learning as a congregation, as a faith family, what it looks like for us to be the church. And that brings us to Acts chapter 7, and we're going to learn from Stephen. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about Stephen's life. And I asked you this question, who do you want to be when you grow up? Because Stephen is a a character, he's a type of the person that every believer should admire to be like. He was full of faith, full of wisdom, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what God desires out of every single person. One of us. And what we learned is that God loves to use ordinary people, like the person sitting next to you, ordinary people, just like him, just like her, to do extraordinary things. And I believe that what God did in Stephen's life is what God wants to do in your life, in all of our lives, extraordinary things to just everyday, average, ordinary people. And last week, we started off with a question of what do you want to be when you grow up? And I showed you that embarrassing picture of me from first grade playing baseball. Do you remember that? Do y'all want to see it one more time just to laugh at me? Too bad. You missed last week. You're not getting it again. That's what happens when you don't come to church. You miss out on the good stuff, all right? So make sure you're here next week. Thank you for being here today. But we asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because we want to grow into being like Stephen. Now, this week we're going to shift gears. And instead of looking at Stephen's life, we're going to witness Stephen's death. We're going to watch as Stephen gives his life for the sake of the gospel. And I'm going to ask you a different question today. Instead of asking you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to ask you, what type of person do you want to be on the last day of your life? What kind of things do you want people to say about you when you're gone? What's going to be your reputation that's going to outlive you? I want to ask this question. What is your your legacy? What are you going to leave behind? I turned 38 this week. Thank you. Um, And I realized something, that I'm halfway through my life. The average life expectancy of a male in America is 77 years old. So you divide that by two, I'm halfway there. Living on a prayer, somebody, come on. I'm halfway there. My my life is is almost, I'm, I'm 50% done. And so it's really got me thinking about, not just what I can be, but what I can leave behind. What kind of legacy am I going to leave for my, my wife, for my kids, for my grandkids, for this community, for Southeast Texas, for the kingdom of God, for, for, for redemption? What's my legacy going to be? What are people going to say about me when I'm gone? There's a philosopher, his name is Soren Kierkegaard. He's a Christian Danish philosopher, lived hundreds of years ago, way smarter than me. And he famously said this, that life is to be uh, planned forwards but lived backwards. What does that mean? What does it mean to plan your life forwards but live your life backwards? What it means is envision yourself on the last day, the last day of your life. Who are you surrounded by? What are they saying? What are you known for? 
What matters most on the last day? Well, that's what matters most today. That you figure out who you want to be on that last day, and then you live every day, if it's your last day, working towards that goal. That you plan your life forwards, but you live your life backwards. That's the secret to leaving a legacy. Treat every day as if it was your last day. So on that last day, you live a life that counted. We're going to learn that from a man named Stephen. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 7. We're going to do the entire chapter today, and it starts off by giving us some lessons on leaving a legacy. And the first thing we see is this. If you want to leave a legacy, you got to understand the priority of evangelism. Look what starts off with this. It says this, and the high priest said, are these things so, verse 2, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Okay, now, what we always have to do, because if you are a guest or you're new, you need to understand we're an expository church. What does that mean? Is that we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. 95% of our sermon series here is just walking through books of the Bible. So we're in Acts chapter 7. We have, I'm bad at math. How many more chapters is that? That's 21 chapters to go. I'm a preacher. The only numbers I'm good at is the book of numbers, all right? And so, uh, so, so we're going to be here for a while. It's 21st week in this study. And what I always say is in order to understand the text, you have to understand the context. We're not just picking and choosing verses because if you just showed up, you're like, and Stephen said, like, what did he say? Why is he doing this? What is the high priest? Who is that? What does he have to do with this? We got to go back to Acts chapter 6. What happened in 6 is that Stephen was preaching and performing signs and wonders and miracles and advancing the kingdom of God. And this made the religious leaders very angry. Because on multiple occasions throughout the book of Acts, they've tried to stop the church from growing. They thought they got rid of the church when they murdered Jesus. Three and a half, four years before this, through his death, burial, resurrection, the church continued to grow. Jesus gave him the great commission. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what started with 11 people on Pentecost, what happened is the spirit of God fell upon them. They began to preach. 3,000 people got saved. Acts chapter 5, 5,000 people got saved. And as the church continues to experience opposition and persecution and hardship, now we are almost three, maybe five years later. Most scholars estimate the church is upwards of 30,000 people. Worshiping, loving Jesus. And so they arrest them and throw them in prison. Said, if you keep talking about Jesus, we're going to kill you. And they let him go. And they keep making threat after threat after threat. Well, today, it's not a threat. It's a promise. And we're going to watch Stephen actually give his life for the gospel of Jesus. And so they accused him last week of four blasphemies. Blasphemy against Moses, the law the temple, and blasphemy against God. So Stephen's on trial. He's standing before the high priest, which is like the Supreme Court. He's the judge, and he's facing public execution. And they want to know, Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? And here's what Stephen says. Brothers and fathers, hear me. He sees this as an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Because he understands the priority of evangelism. What I love about Stephen is he doesn't retreat or run away. He doesn't apologize. He, he doesn't you know, post on you know, X, formerly known as Twitter, an apology. He doesn't go around and say, you misunderstood me. 
No, that's not what I meant. Let me explain myself. Oh, hey, I'm so sorry about offending you. Let me just stop talking about Jesus publicly because I have a private relationship with Jesus. I'm just going to keep that to myself from here on out. Somebody does. He sees this as an opportunity to share his testimony. Because he recognizes the priority of evangelism. The last words Jesus ever said was this. You will be my witnesses. That word witness in the Greek, it's the word martus, which is where we get the word martyr. Stephen lived a life of martyrdom. He lived a life fully surrendered and abandoned to the call of Christ. He lived a life. He was a living martyr, which means he died as a martyr as well. Because he understood, this is my opportunity to tell my testimony, to tell people about Jesus. He's doing literally what Peter would later say to do is this. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is within you. He says, oh, this is my opportunity to share my testimony. This is, the, this is a, my moment to be on mission. This is, my, this is my opportunity to lead one more person to Jesus in my lifetime. Because he valued, he understood the priority of evangelism. Now, there's a lot of people who would read this and say, okay, Stephen, that's dumb. Like, you literally just got yourself killed, right? Shouldn't you read the room? Don't you know? Like, that's foolish. Listen, the Bible says the one who wins souls is wise. It's never foolish to tell somebody else about Jesus. And a lot of us, we get nervous. Like, I posted on Instagram this week, taking a little survey about what spiritual disciplines do people struggle with the most. I posted prayer, Bible reading, fasting, Sabbath, and evangelism. And over 70% of the responses said that most people struggle when it comes to evangelism, to sharing their faith. And, and I think a lot of it is because we're afraid, we're scared, we're nervous, we're anxious. What if they reject us? What if they don't accept us? What if we make it awkward? We're looking for the right time. That's what most people do. Like if God serves me up a sinner on a silver platter, then, then I'll share my faith with them. I'm waiting for them to ask me. I'm not going to go to them. Can I just encourage you with something? Like there is never a bad time to share the good news. It's good news for a reason. Like I'm just looking for the right person. There is no wrong person. The gospel is a human right. Everybody needs to hear it. There is no bad time to share the good news. Anywhere, everyone that we meet, we want to tell them about Jesus, the hope of our salvation, the blessings that come from God. Every person is loved by God. Therefore, they want to hear what God has to say about salvation. There is never a bad time. Whether it's in the hurry at the H-E-B checkouts, whether it's at the gym with a friend, whether it's at college or school or work, or whether it's your little kiddos as you're tucking them in bed at night, tell them about Jesus, an enemy. Jesus says that we're to love our enemies and to pray for them. Share the gospel with them and be reconciled. Go from enemies to brothers and sisters. Who's, who's Stephen preaching to? His enemies. Giving them an opportunity to know Jesus. People struggle with this. But can I just tell you, the Great Commission was not a suggestion or an option. The Great Commission was a command. Go and make disciples of all nations. Be my witness. There's a priority that is placed upon evangelism. And so here's what I did last week, and, and here's what I'm going to do this week. And if you come back next week, I'm going to do it again because I want to create a culture of evangelism. 
You know, next week we're actually having a missionary, one of your missionaries from Africa. He's actually going to be here next week. He trains pastors and plants churches in the bush out in Africa. He's going to be here next week. He's going to preach on missions because I want our church to cultivate a heart of missions because that's the great, that's the great commission. That's, that's, our, that's our marching orders. And so we need to understand this, but missions doesn't only happen overseas. Missions happens across the streets. It doesn't just happen in Africa. It happens at work. It happens everywhere, everyone, all the time as we share the good news. And so what I want to do is I want to help you prioritize evangelism in your life. On your way out the door today, our, our greeter team is going to have these invite cards. Just grab one of these. You, you say, I may not be bold enough to have a conversation. That's fine. Could you be bold enough to give an invitation? An invitation to say, hey, I'm going to save you a seat on Sunday. You can sit with me. I'd love to take you out for lunch afterwards. I'll buy it. And I'll tell you about Jesus, what he's done in my life. Would you come to church? Grab three of these and say, Holy Spirit, who do you want me to invite to church this week? And then throughout your week, be looking for opportunities to evangelize. Make it a priority in your life. And I'll say this as well. You know, Redemption, uh, with our building campaign and, and Multiply and everything we're doing, we do not have a marketing budget here at the church. We spent zero dollars on marketing. You know why? Because you're our marketing <laughs> You're our advertising. Like, we're just going back to the Bible. What do they do? Well, they live their lives as witnesses. And so what are you going to do? You're going to live your life as a witness. We're not spending money on magazines or on Facebook ads or Instagram or any of that stuff like that. And look, there's no mailers going out, right? You are our marketing strategy. And you're the best marketing strategy we got as we learn to be his witnesses. Can I get an amen, somebody? Amen. So the second thing we see is this. He understood the promises of God. So he says, brothers, hear me. Fathers, hear me. And then now he's going to go in to the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. It's the longest chapter in the book of Acts. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And there's a lot of things that Stephen was remembered for. But let me remind you, he was a normal person. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't the apostle. He wasn't a disciple who walked with Jesus for three years. He was just like you. He was on the, the greeter team, the welcome team. He was on the production team. And Stephen... When given this opportunity, he, he realizes this is a shot at legacy here. And Stephen's known for a lot of things. One of the first deacons, first serve team. He was known for being the first martyr, which we're going to see in a little bit. But one of the things that is so beautiful about Stephen is that even though he was an ordinary person, he had a hunger for God's word in his heart. So all I want to do is I want to honor the legacy of Stephen. I, I want to I, I I value the sacrifice that Stephen's going to make. And so I debated all week long, how am I going to do this? I'm about to read you 50 plus verses right now. And I was like, are, are we going to chop this up into multiple pieces, spread it out over dozens of sermons? But in order to really understand the legacy, we have to step back and look at it in its totality. And so if you are able to, would you honor Stephen by honoring the word of God? And would you stand with me as I read this all together? We love the Bible here at Redemption, right? Amen. So I'm not afraid to read it out loud because it is hearing of the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The God of glory, he says, appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to them, go out to the land in which your kindred, and go into the land which I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. 
Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that the offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would then enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. This is what Stephen is saying to the high priest. He's walking them through the Old Testament, starting in the book of Genesis. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and they shall worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all the afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction to our fathers. They could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was a grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became uh, known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob to his father and all of his kindred, 75 persons at all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid into a tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and of Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, he's talking about the promise of God. We'll unpack that in a little bit. Which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers and exposed our infants. That means he attempted to kill all the children so that they would not be kept alive. And at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in the father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughters adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and, and mighty was in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, he came into, the heart to visit, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them was being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand it. And on the following day, they appeared to them, and as they were quarreling, tried to reconcile one another, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong one another? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you the ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And now at this report, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, 40 years had passed. An angel appeared to him. I believe this is the pre-incarnate Jesus in the Old Testament. From the Mount Sinai in the flame of the fire in the bush, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice from the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is now holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them. Now come and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they have rejected saying, who made you the ruler and judge? This man God sent both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, he led him out performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses is prophesying another one is going to come who will deliver you. He goes on and he says this. 
the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angels, who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to us, to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us now gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led them out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered sacrifices to the idol in which they were rejoicing in the works of their hands, worshiping false demon gods. But God turned away them to the worship the hosts of heaven, as it was written in the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took up the tent of Moloch, the star of your god Rephon, false demons, the images that you made as you worshipped, and I will send you now into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought in with Joshua when they deposed of the land of the nations, the God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God in the house of Jacob, the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my home and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What I love about Stephen is that Stephen was a student of the word of God. Stephen didn't have time to prepare this message. Like he's standing in front of the high priest. He had prepared for this message because he had prepared his heart with his life. And the word of God was so deep inside of Stephen that whenever pressure came, it poured out of him. Do you want to leave a legacy? That's what it takes. A hunger for the word of God. It, it takes a desire to know who God is and to, to study his word and to, to live accordingly. And what I love about Stephen is that in this moment, he recognized what, what we should all know is that it's, it's always pointing to Jesus. Everything points you to Jesus. Like, you know that, like, when you read the Bible, like, from Genesis to Revelation, the map's in the back. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the whole point of the Bible is to, to point you to Jesus. And so he's quoting the Bible to, to the religious leaders. Now, this is crazy. You know why? Because they know the Bible. They've spent their entire lives studying the Bible. They're the religious leaders, the holy elite. But yet... They missed Jesus, which means they missed the point of the whole Bible. Jesus says it like this. You study the words because in them you think you find life, but you don't realize that the whole word is pointing to me. The point of the Bible is to point you to Jesus. The promise of God is not religion, but it's a personal relationship with Christ. Amen. That we need to have a personal relationship, that we, we know him, we love him, we serve him, we submit to him, we give our lives to him, we repent, and we are filled with his glory. That's the point of the Bible is to point you to a God who loves you and a God who cares for you, a God who rescues you and redeems you, a God who saves you. It's always been about God with us. 
and the religious leaders who were so focused on their rules and their regulations and their traditions and their history, they missed it when Jesus was standing right in front of them. So what, what he's going to do is this. He's going he's to point them to Jesus by, by doing an Old Testament survey. He's going to walk through the Old Testament. Remember, he's on trial for four blasphemies. And so he's going back into the Old Testament and showing them how everything points to Jesus. And he starts off by talking about, about Abraham. He reveals to us that Jesus is greater than Abraham. Who's Abraham? Like, if you don't know the story, maybe you remember the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father. Come on, somebody. 9 a.m. did it. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just... Right arm, left. What does right arm, left arm have to do with the story? I think that's just redemption kids trying to work all the giggles out, right? It's just somebody, kids hopped up on sugar, right? And so we're like, hey, we need to shake that out a little bit. But, but who's Abraham? Abraham's the father of the nation. Through a miracle birth, God gave him a son. And then later on, God wanted him to sacrifice his son. So out of obedience, he goes up to the top of the mountain, getting ready to perform the sacrifice. And God says, Stop! And he provided the sacrifice in his place. And then what we see in the life of Jesus is through a miraculous birth comes the only begotten son of God who also climbed up on the top of a mountain called Calvary. And he was the sacrifice for us. God sent his only son. Abraham points you to Jesus Jesus is greater than Abraham because Jesus did what Abraham could never do. Jesus is better than Joseph. Who's Joseph? Oh, Joseph, he had a loving father and he was a son. And he had a dream that people would, would bow before him and he would deliver his brothers. And his brothers got jealous and they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And for about 30 years, he lived as a slave until eventually he rose to the right hand of the king, and when his brothers were in a famine and they came to Egypt, who was waiting for him? Joseph. They didn't see him the first time, but the second time he revealed himself and he saved the entire nation. Joseph points you to Jesus because just like Joseph, Jesus was thrown into a pit, but that pit was called a grave. And three days later, he resurrected and he ascended to the right hand of the king where now he gives us freedom. Jesus did what Joseph could never do. Number three, he talks about Moses. Who's, who's Moses? Moses was the deliverer. God raised up a prophet. God's people were living in slavery under Pharaoh, a wicked tyrant. And Moses comes and he says, let my people go. And through signs and wonders and miracles, God delivered the people through the Red Sea and into the promised land. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the prophet who comes preaching with signs and wonders and miracles. He dethrones the Pharaoh of this world, Satan. And he came to deliver the captives and to set us free. And through the death, burial, and resurrection, we pass through the Red Sea and we enter into eternal life. Amen. Jesus is greater than Moses. Then he talks about the law. What is the law? The law gets a bad rap these days. People are like, oh, it's the law, it's the law. Actually, the law is a good thing. The law was for your protection. God wrote his heart, his ways, his word, his decrees down so that, that we would be able to know how to live. But here's the problem with the law is that nobody could keep it. 
Not even the people who are like, You're, you, you blaspheme the law. Because here's what they're doing. Remember, there's your false accusations. These are false witnesses. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So even in trying to hold them accountable to the law, they failed to keep it themselves. The purpose of the law is to point you to Jesus, to show you that no one can do it. No one's righteous, not even one. No one can keep the law. And so Jesus comes and he fulfills the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to, he came to fulfill the law on our behalf. He showed us who God is. He showed us the word of God. The word of God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The law points you to a savior, points you to Jesus. And then he talks about the temple. The temple is the holy place. The religious leaders, that's where they thought that, that they were better than everybody else. Because we have the temple. God dwells here in Israel with us. It's the high holy place. It's the place of, of all religious duties and worship. And, and, and Stephen leans in and he reminds them, hey guys, remember God's presence was with you before this temple ever existed. Remember, Mo, remember Abraham back in Mesopotamia? God was with him. Remember Joseph when he was sitting in that prison cell? He says God was with him there too. Remember Moses in the wilderness? God was with him in the wilderness. God's promises have never been about a place. It's always been about a people. It's always been about the people. God's heart has always been about people. God's love has always been for people. God's, God's, God's salvation has always been about a people. It's never been about a place. It's been said this, that in the Old Testament, God had a, a temple for his people, but in the New Testament, God has a people for his temple. Because what we see is this, if you have given your life to Jesus, you have a personal relationship with Jesus, God the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That the, the presence of God is not kept in houses made by hands because heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. God is everywhere with us, any place that we are at, when we seek him, when we call upon him. Why? Because it's a personal relationship with Jesus that matters the most. And if you focus on religion and keeping the rules and judging those who don't, you will miss it. The religious leaders, they missed it because they were so focused on their works and their deeds and their traditions and, 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 and how good they could be and how the rule keeping they could make. And they missed it, which means they missed out. You want to you wanna ruin your legacy? Be a religious hypocrite. Religion will destroy your legacy. Go ahead, try it. Go home and just speak negative words over your wife. Ladies, point out every critical thing you can think about in your husband. Try doing that to your kids. You never measure up. You're never gonna be enough. I'm not gonna be proud of you. Try to see what kind of legacy that leaves for your family. Go, go to work, start treating people like jerks. Go to your friends, hold them to standards that you don't hold yourself. You want to destroy the legacy of this church? Gossip and point out other people's sins without taking accountability of your own. Be a religious hypocrite and see what legacy you leave. You'll just be like the temple destroyed, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the high priest dead and gone. Nobody's talking about them. They're a footnote in the Bible, but we're still talking about Stephen. You know why? Because he had a relationship with Jesus. 
You want to leave a legacy like Abraham, like Joseph, like Moses, like David, like Solomon, like Stephen? It starts with relationship, loving God, serving others, pouring your heart out, repenting, trusting in him, drawing close to him. It starts with relationship. And from there, that's where legacy is built. Do you have a relationship with Christ? It's always about God's God's love for us. Even the birth of Jesus on that day, they said his name shall be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every religion says you got to make your way to God. And God says, no, 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 no. You can't. So I'm going to make my way to you. Every other religion says, it's all about your works. Reincarnate. Pay off your karmic debts. Read this translation. Speak this language. Dress in these ways. Wear this hairdo. Read this translation. And if you do enough good deeds, then you can make it to heaven. And Christianity says, there is not enough good deeds you can do. It's about the work of Jesus on the cross. It's always been about Jesus. Not about you. Not about your works, not about what you do, but what Jesus has done for you. From Genesis to today, it's always been about Jesus. It's the promise of God that Jesus would love you and save you and forgive you. It's the promise of God. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. And so I can see that there's people in the room who's moved right now. How did Stephen's sermon go over? Do you think that there was an altar call? (laughs) Let's see how Stephen brings home the close of his message. Here's here's what he says. You stiff-necked people! (laughs) Stephen's got a light touch, doesn't he? Sometimes people are like, Byron, why do you yell so much? And sometimes you're mean. It's like, I'm just... Saying what the Bible says, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just just trying to be biblical. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You're just like your fathers. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels, you did not keep it. Listen, every sermon has application. Like my job here is not just to give you a commentary of the scriptures. You want that? You can go to Lifeway and you can buy you a book. Like we're at church, which means that a sermon requires application. I want to give you some handles, something you could go home to talk about with your spouse or join your small group and discuss because information without application will not bring transformation in your life. You got to apply God's word to your life. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And so what do we need to learn from this message? Well, the first of all, I'll just tell you this. If you were raised in Southeast Texas, this is a warning to you. How so? Because you have received a legacy of faith through your grandparents or through your parents who raised you in the fear of the Lord, who brought you to Sunday school, took you to Royal Rangers on Wednesday night. You had a praying grandmother. You had a, you had a believing parents. Or maybe in youth group, 
You had a friend. Your parents didn't believe in Jesus, but you had a friend in sixth grade who invited you to a youth group, and you went and you grew up with them. But what happened is you grew up and you left the faith. You heard the stories, but you didn't know Jesus. And there is a gospel seed inside of your heart, but you've walked away. What Stephen is saying is this. The longer you resist the Holy Spirit, the more seared your conscience is going to become to the point where you no longer hear him. You will be held accountable for the information that you know. And if you've received a legacy of faith, this is a warning to you. The longer you resist the Holy Spirit, the harder your heart's going to get to eventually, it might be too late one day. He says, you stiff-necked people, you resist the Holy Spirit. And so what is Stephen doing? He's coming in a long line of, uh, of prophets. He's coming in a long line of messengers. And he's saying, God has continually been sending you warning after warning and prophet after prophet and messenger after messenger calling you back to him. And every single time he does, you resist them and you reject them and you kill them and you murder them. So then God sent Jesus And what does he say? The righteous one. What did you do to Jesus? He says, you murdered Jesus. You need to understand something. Your sin is the reason that Jesus died. Like, you sinned and you sinned. I sinned. The collector sins. The wages of sin is death. Your sin hung Jesus on that cross. You're just as guilty as the religious. Stephen's pointing his finger at you. But then he uses this word here. It's it's very amazing. He says the righteous one. Who's righteous? No one's righteous but one. It's Jesus. This is what Martin Luther calls the the great exchange. It's the the path of salvation. The great exchange is that when you give Jesus your sin, Jesus gives you his sinlessness. Here's how Paul writes it later. He says, he who knew no sin became sin so that through him you can become the righteousness of God. This is grace. What do, we, what do you give to God? Like, like, what does God ask of us? Here's what he wants. He wants your worst. Give him the worst day of your life. Give him the worst thing you've ever done. Give him that fear that keeps you awake at night. Give him that anxiety that is crippling you. Give him that secret you don't tell your husband. Give him that dark day when you were six years old. Give him your shame. Give him your guilt. Say, Jesus, take my worst. And at the cross, here's what God the Father did. It's called the doctrine of imputation. That all of the unrighteousness of the world was laid on the shoulders of Jesus. And he said, God, lay their sins upon me. And he sat there. As the sins of the world was poured out on his shoulders, the worst things of humanity poured out on the perfect Son of God. From eternity past 
to eternity future. The weight of the world was on his shoulders. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, here's what Jesus says. For those who trust in me, you're righteous. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. My friends, this is why we say this, that grace is a gift you receive. It is not something you achieve. Jesus already achieved it on the cross. Your rule keeping, your pretending, your legalism, your, your, your good works, your good deeds, your best day of your life, you still fall short. So Jesus comes and Jesus takes our unrighteousness, gives us his. Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his sinlessness. Jesus takes our guilt and gives us his grace. This is the path of salvation. And every single one of us, we have, we have two choices. You can either reject him or you can accept it. You can either resist or you can repent. Stephen is just like the prophets of old saying, God has sent me here one last time to invite you back into relationship. I'm standing behind this pulpit right now and I'm doing my best to honor the legacy of Stephen by giving you another opportunity to accept Jesus. By saying, there's nothing that you've done that's too far from God. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're at, what you've done, or how far you've run. You cannot outrun the grace of God. Come home. Give your life to him. Lay it down and be made whole. Like, do you want a legacy? It starts at the foot of the cross on the, the path to salvation. That's where your legacy begins. You say, but Byron, I've wasted my life. Everything done before the cross is lost. Everything after is gain. Live from the foot of the cross. That's where your legacy starts. A new life, a new hope, a new future, a new destiny, a new promise, a new eternity, a new community, new gifts, new purpose, new power. It's all available at the foot of the cross. Your legacy starts at the foot of the cross. It's the path of salvation. And Stephen's leaning over saying, one more time, give your life to Jesus. So how do they respond? Every message needs application. Every sermon needs a response. Here's the response that we see. It's the presence of Jesus. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, angered. It says here that they ground their teeth at him. They become rabid wolves. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city. They threw him off of a 10-foot cliff, a little precipice, and they began to stone him. And the witnesses, they laid down their garments like a, like a pitcher coming out of the bullpen. They take off their jackets to get a better aim. And they begin to throw rocks, and they begin to stone him. And they laid their garments at the foot of a young man named Saul. We're going to meet him in a few weeks. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What is he doing? He's quoting Jesus from the cross. 
What did Jesus say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is he saying? He's lived like Jesus. He will die like Jesus. And then he says this. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, hold this sin. Do not hold this sin against them. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The last words on Stephen's lips was a prayer for somebody else's soul. The priority of evangelism. The promise of God. The path of salvation. The presence of Jesus. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, as Christians, we need to understand that that word sleep there, that's the Bible's way of saying somebody died. Stephen died. But the Bible says that because as Christians, we don't die. We have eternal life with Jesus for now. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our body may be here in the ground, but our soul is with Jesus in heaven. And at the second coming, there will be a resurrection of the dead. God will recreate the heavens and the earth, and we will live with him for now and forever. But as Christians, we do not die because to live is Christ, to die is to gain. Stephen understood this. And at the end of his life, he got to see the presence of Jesus. You got to understand how Stephen lived his life. He lived his life with the presence of Jesus as the important thing. And this is fascinating because what we recognize is this. Is as he looked up, it says he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is fascinating because in the Old Testament and the New, there's dozens of references about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. In the book of Psalms, he talks about, didn't the Lord not say to my Lord, ascend to my right hand and I will give you. And then in Acts chapter 1, it talks about how Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sat down. The book of Revelation talks about Jesus at the right hand of the Father. But he's always seated. What do we read right here? When he looks up, he says, behold, I see Jesus. And what is he doing? It's the only time in the Bible it ever says that Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father. What, what does that mean? He, he looks up and he sees the presence of Jesus. Jesus says it like this. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. But those of us who live our lives as witnesses will be welcomed by the Father on the day of Stephen's death. He got a standing ovation from heaven. All of heaven rejoices at Stephen. And Jesus stands and looks over the edge of eternity and he says, Stephen! Welcome home. Father, meet Stephen. He's bold. He's courageous, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. He was a witness. He's loyal. Welcome Stephen. Stephen, come home. Welcome Stephen. Stephen heard the words that we all long to hear at the end of our lives. Well done, good and faithful servants. That's all that matters. 
that's the legacy, guys. Not what happens on this earth. Not what home you live in or car you drive. Not what clothes you wear. Not circle you're in. Not what you did. None of those things matter unless it's surrender to God. There's a quote that says, one life shall soon be passed. Only that which is done for Christ will last. In the end, everything you're worried about, everything you're focused on, everything you're freaking out about, in the end, if it's not for God, it don't count. How did Stephen live his life this way? Well, he told us in verse 2 and then in verse 55. If you go all the way back to verse 2, here's how Stephen lived his life. He, he told us the secret. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. Brothers and sisters, Redemption Church guests, hear me. It's the glory of God. It starts with the glory of God. Giving honor, giving worth giving value, giving preeminence, prioritizing of the first and most importance. It's the glory of God more than anything else. It's the glory of God. And then at the end, he says, behold, I saw God in his glory. You wanna see the glory of God? Live it. Live for the glory of God and you will see the glory of God. Here's your legacy. Your legacy is Stephen's legacy. Your legacy is our legacy. If you wanna leave a legacy, you live for the glory of God. You know, there will be people who see more of God's glory in their lives than those, than others. You know why? Because they live for the glory of God. There's some Christians who go through the motions, they're not gonna witness the miracles. I'm just telling you, like, you, you can make it to heaven, but you're going to miss out on life. Maybe not eternal life, but life right now, here and now. Because you're not living for the glory of God, you're living for your glory. But if you want to see God's glory, if you want to bask in his goodness, if you want it to radiate in your life, then here's what you do. You live for it now. You do what Stephen did. You focus on the last day. And then you live every day like it's your last. That's how you leave a legacy. Soren Kierkegaard said, life is to be planned forward, but to live backwards. Where do you want to be on the last day of your life? What type of man do you want to be? What type of woman do you want to be? What type of mother do you want to be? What type of church member do you want to be? What kind of boss or employee? What kind of friend do you want to be on that last day? What do you want people to say about you? What do you want heaven to say about you on that last day? then you live like that now. You live like that today. Here's the reason why, last words. Your decisions determine your destiny. Your life is nothing more than a culmination of choices and consequences. Stephen made a choice to give his life to Jesus. That choice had consequences, but that consequence ended up being his legacy.